Hello and welcome to the 43rd episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month, I'm joined by David Yakubovich. He runs the Humane Podcast and is a principal data scientist at Galvanize. We chat about data science education and where the industry is going, the importance of data protection and ethics in data science, transhumanism and discrimination, upskilling and reimagining the world after the COVID pandemic, and lots more. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find more episodes, go to our website at machine-ethics.net. You can support us at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. And you can contact us on Instagram and Twitter, the handles machine underscore ethics. Just a quick note, we talk a little bit about discrimination in the podcast. We obviously acknowledge that there's a lot, lot more to be done there for all types of discrimination in the world. In our conversation, we're mainly pointing out that technologies can amplify and exasperate some of the discriminations and create new forms into the future. Thanks and hope you enjoy. So thanks for joining us on the podcast. David Yakubovich. If you could just introduce yourself quickly, um, who you are and what do you do? Thanks, Ben. So uh, I work for Galvanize as a principal data scientist. I'm one of our data science team leads for the enterprise. I also help bridge the gap for data partnerships. So this is doing scaled training efforts all around the world. Uh, like yourself, I'm also in the podcast space. I have the Humane podcast. It's been around since early 2019. Uh, it's focusing on human augmented intelligence, having humans and machines work together. Great. And I, I, I was always looking at the the podcast logo and thinking, how do I pronounce that? Because it kind of, it's almost like humane AI or human AI or humane podcast. You can almost say it in like all these different ways. Yeah, it's uh, so interesting. People have gone all those approaches. And actually, my inspiration for it is from the French word humane, which means to be human. Uh, so absolutely. Nice. Um, and it's a really good podcast. Um, I've been listening uh, to some of the back catalog in preparation for talking to you. Um, and you get a lot of people who are really interested in um, the educational part of kind of AI and upskilling people and, and the future of work and uh, where automation is taking us, I guess, um, and, and some authors and, and people like that. But um, lots of uh, conversations around uh, legislation and, and um, academia and things like that. You kind of have this fascination with AI and the education part, where does where does that come from? Where does that um, begin in your journey with the education of AI? Yeah, so I'm someone who's a big fan of mathematics. I love academia. And, you know, for me, ever since even elementary and secondary school, I was doing math competitions in the United States, like math counts. And then it went into like Armel and, and all these international Olympiads and had so much fun with quantifying results that had an impact. Uh, but everything back in the day, right, it was by hand with these TI calculators or mental math. And when I was continuing in the academia route, I actually in college, I, I initially was focusing on physics and mathematics as a dual major. I was like, I'm just looking at quantified self. And this was like, as we were just entering the 2010s and everyone was starting talking about cloud and all these interesting systems and deploying data from a calculator into an app. And I, I thought it was so fascinating, which got me on that journey. And, and of course, that's been a journey now of more than 10 years through the world of analytics, data, 
and AI. Um, and what I found so fascinating is the speed at which all this technology is changing. I mean, for someone who comes from academia, who whether you're in undergrad, master's, or PhD, postdoc route, you know, technology isn't really your goal, right? Your goal is finding breakthrough research or understanding science and, and what you can discover. And you could be spending five, six years working on a project or this dissertation, and then the whole language that you start programming with is obsolete by that point. So um, I thought it was just great to see, like, how can we get into open source and, and how can everyone learn about, you know, what's cutting edge and relevant in education so people come out ahead with, you know, jobs and, and good careers. So you've hit on this this really interesting point about academia and staying cutting edge, you know, and, and keeping ahead so that when you come out into the world of work, you are still relevant and, and things like that. And anecdotally, it's one of the things that almost um, has restricted me to not go back and do maybe a PhD, something like that, um, because I want to stay relevant um, and be able to work in industry and, and collaborate with industry, actually. Um, so do you think, obviously, Galvanize is um, there to plug one of that kind of hole? Do you think there's something that is uh, systemic and, and could be changed and collaborated on in the future generally um, with people like you? You know, how, how do we resolve this issue? So as we've looked in 2020 at the COVID quarter, as we've moved into like a digital first or digital only life, a lot of people are thinking, you know, what does education mean to me? You know, if I'm being furloughed, if I'm unemployed or underemployed, should I go back to a program? And the credentialing world has completely changed. It's become a flipped classroom. I mean, you see programs like Coursera and edX offering master's degrees online. You have boot camps like Galvanize and General Assembly, you know, with some of the biggest parent companies there like ADECO and K-12 where we're bridging the gap in K-12 and for postgrad. And the challenge when we look at everything with education is how do you stay relevant? Um, I think one thing that we're excited about at Galvanize is we were acquired in January 2020 by K-12. So we're a publicly traded company in the United States now. That means that we're working with the largest provider of charter schools, which are these like public-private hybrid schools in the states um, where anyone can learn and we're bringing that data and software education as early as kindergarten so we're really exposing everyone especially from non-traditional backgrounds who may not be considering college as that career pathway to be able to get tech jobs after secondary school on the same token, the programs we have at Galvanize uh, allow anyone to get in, you know, just can you code, right? Can you have the persistence, the grit, the determination to go into tech? Um, we see everyone from, you know, the high school dropout to the PhD transitioning to the software engineer who wants to go the ML route. I think anyone can be successful with code. Um, I think the biggest challenge, though, like that you're presenting here, Ben, is that in academia, um, there's not always enough direction. You have your advisor, you have the projects you're focusing on, but the world has flipped its classroom. And what I mean by that is we have uh, publications that no longer go into a 12-month cycle or even longer than that. We've seen with COVID that we have all these pubs and these science pubs. And this is one of the big 25 trends I'm calling in, in Q2 2020 that these science pubs are accelerating research. Uh, it's been said that with COVID, there's been over 80,000 papers. And sure, they're not all true. A lot of them are just you know uh, people trying to get their name out there, unfortunately. 
but it's it's happening so much quicker at a quicker clip. Uh, we're even seeing platforms like Papers with Code, where anyone can go on and learn the cutting edge research from different uh, machine learning or computer vision conferences. So. I think it's incredible the speed of technology and that in academia, you can know that you maybe don't need that PhD. Uh, it just depends. What are you trying to accomplish? What are your goals? Mm, yeah. So maybe if you're trying to accomplish a very specific thing, a PhD might be a good option. But otherwise, if you're trying to solve, create solutions to problems that we have right now, then maybe that's less of a, a path necessarily. Yeah, I mean, the big thing that we're seeing is the split between research and practical. Uh, in the past few weeks, you know, there's been conversation that Uber, uh, the big uh, ride hailing company has axed their AI research division. And we've seen a lot of those other research divisions get um, crushed in, in the COVID crisis. Uh, but some companies have kept them, especially in the finance industry, the quants, uh, where research can give you those extra milliseconds when you're trading or get that information ahead of your competition. But the emergence of practical AI, I mean, that is a huge trend that I think is here to stay. Yeah. And that, that neatly leads us on to the next question, which is um, both what is kind of machine learning? So what is AI? Um, what are these terms? Um, it's the question we always ask at the beginning of the podcast. So it's kind of what is the definition of AI to you? And we've talked about uh, machine learning already a little bit. And really, why should anyone care? I mean, we've, we're telling people already too that um, it's a really um, potent area to be in and that um, there are lots of jobs at the moment in data science um, and anecdotally that it just keeps grow growing year on year at the moment. So what is AI and why should people get into data science? Yeah, so I think AI is just a natural evolution of data science. The challenge has been that, you know, AI has been around since the 1940s, 50s, and 60s when we've been evolving these terms. We just never had the compute and the systems to process and store large amounts of data. Just in the last 15 years, now we have all these large data systems and large systems on the cloud. And we've started automating the data analysis, which is what a data scientist has become, this person that can investigate, drive insights, and then pick some of the algorithms to predict a result. The difference where I see with AI is that result becomes automated. It becomes AI as a service or data as a service where you can not only move through a whole iterative cycle of the data science workflow, but beyond that, the system learns and the system can keep making those improvements with or without the human. My belief is it should always be augmented by the humans and we should be kept in the loop for those processes. And and this is, uh, do you think this is a process that she's going to keep going? I mean, I actually watched a video yesterday um, on the YouTubes. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've heard of YouTube. Have you heard of YouTube? YouTube, that platform part of uh, Amaya, is that right? Oh, that's from devs, I mean yeah. Google. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's one one big conglomerate, I'm sure. Um, and they were saying, they're hypothesizing that actually data science um, was going to be a field which uh, was going to reach a plateau, right? Because you'd have, um, you will fulfill the amount of people who have the practical skills for the amount of companies that actually require their skills or more of those skills will be offloaded into, you know, services, service industries, um, providing those skills um, as and when they're required. Yeah, so 
so thinking about this, like, has the data science industry plateaued? Like, where are we going towards? And my big answer is no. I see two big changes occurring in the industry, though. One is end-to-end -end services. So we saw in late 2019 at big conferences like O'Reilly Strata, the emergence of the data science as a platform. And every company there was saying, we are the platform, we're gonna take you from A to Z or zero to hero. I don't know if every company can do that because there's so many advanced parts of the process that you need to niche down or, or become an expert there. Um, so I think that's one reason why we've not reached the peak. And a lot of startups and companies are trying to solve different areas of their from collecting data to cleaning data and refining and expanding or enriching doing the machine learning and even maintaining and deploying solutions I think beyond that it's because data is just expanding way beyond Moore's law I mean we have all these internet of things devices in our houses today in our apartments and condos and flats and right now we only have maybe a couple dozen there's predictions by McKinsey and HBR that we'll have hundreds of these in the next few years everything from our our toilet to our dishwasher is going to be telling us when it needs changes or updates and that's going to be everywhere not just in our physical locations but throughout our environment we're going to have contact lenses that uh, can immediately have sensors as we see in shows like you know Westworld um, so I think there's gonna be massive amounts of data and we're gonna to have to serve that data through these edge locations and have qualified data professionals to be able to clean, sanitize and interpret it. Yeah, and I guess um, some of the things that you explore with uh, the people on your podcast as you're interviewing them is some of these issues and discoveries and, and kind of whether we're ready for this sort of thing. Um, you know, on the Machine Ethics podcast, we talk a lot about whether these kind of developments are uh, useful for us are going to be positive, uh, a net positive, or maybe somewhere in the middle. So, I mean, the what you've just lined, um, outlined there is something that I've heard before. And, you know, we're already seeing um, the kind of Internet of Things, uh, the computerization of everything. And I've sort of resisted um, to some of this stuff. You know, I don't necessarily need a, an Amazon Echo in each room of my house, for example, but I might need some of it. So do you think this is, is going to be really useful for the long run, really good, or, or do you see some, some dark side as well? So the, the challenge is that every nation state operates differently with data, and we see that emergence or that splintering of the world today. We see how countries like China have gone all in on social systems to monitor credit crime and COVID. And then we have nations like the United States where CCPA has gone in California and in Europe, of course, GDPR out of Brussels, where you have the right to be forgotten with data. I think depending on where data privacy moves is the capacity that we'll be getting towards an integrated or seamless life. Um, I think as humans, naturally, we are having a fight or flight mentality always around change. And that change is how our data is being used. I think if you speak to any technologist working at big tech and small tech, the more data you can collect, the better customer service and experience you can offer. I, th I think products naturally get more informed and more personal 
personalized for better experiences, but there could be that dark side, as you mentioned, Ben, or that dirty data, uh, where we see companies like Clearview AI and Banjo, which have been like disbanded and fought over in the United States for illegally sharing people's photos with police departments and, and governments. Um, we've even seen now where companies like Twitter have taken the, the reason to say, we are the arbingers of truth, uh, to say that President Trump's quotes are or are not true. Um, so I think the challenge is like, how do you interpret that data and where is it appropriate or not? I think when we think long term, long term is like looking into Vision 2030, there will be a net positive. I mean, I am waiting for the day where my glasses can be augmented and I can see my friends in life and pull up their Facebook and LinkedIn and all this without actually taking over my phone. I want seamless experiences. I think all of us don't know what we want, but I think this is gonna create stronger human connection. The biggest challenge though to all of it is really digital transformation. And we see with COVID, I mean, every country's taken a different approach to it. The US recently, we have numbers of 40 million people unemployed. Uh, we've seen Europe's taken an, uh, an opposite approach where they've provided companies 80% of the salaries up to 60,000 you know, euros so that people are, are employed. Um, but the challenge is like, do we reskill? <laughs> when do we reskill? Is now the time? Is this the pinnacle moment uh, at the start of the 2020s? I think it is. And I think, you know, we're not just going to have a COVID-19. There will be a COVID-21, a COVID-22, and we have to prepare for the, the new normal. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in there. I think um, the new normal is a really good um, idea, though, kind of how do we transition out of this current situation, take all those learnings and, you know, change how we operate, but also maybe look at the work we're doing and how we, you know, fit into society um, and and maybe we can transition to a maybe a digital job or a job which is um, more future facing in that way. Um, and obviously, you have this belief that data science isn't going anywhere soon, so it's a good place to start, right? Um, and I ha I have like differing opinions on the kind of um, net positive um, these things, which we may just explore in a later date. But um, let's move on quickly um, so that I don't get trapped myself. Um, well, I, I love that. So if you want to explore that, we can, but uh, we can always, because, uh, you know, it's, um, here's what I'll add for the net positive is we saw in the United States in the presidential election that Andrew Yang was one of the big competitors coming up saying universal basic income or conditional basic income. Let's go live here. And we've seen experiments for this in Norway and Denmark with some quite admirable success. Um, in the US, we have this little uh, movement going on called the Yang Gang. These people for Andrew Yang who are supporting the movement to UBI and perhaps the US has gotten it wrong with COVID. Perhaps we should have gone the European model. Um, you know, the net positive is definitely a long game. And I think when we look back at systems like electricity in 1918, I mean, that created uh, the birth of, well, everything that's enabled today. And we've even seen that from the shift of typewriters to computers. So um, I'm still of that belief, but I can definitely, I can hear these thoughts in the back of your mind. Elon Musk, open AI, where are we going? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. They're kind of like niggling voices. They're kind of like, but really, but is it? Surely something's going to happen. No? 
um, you know, Cambridge Analytic and, and these sorts of things. And the way that I see it is you can quite easily take advantage of these uh, technologies uh, because they are so pervasive and powerful. And um, uh, so part of what I believe is that in um, the data science training, almost the education of, um, you know, this new skill or um, this new thread to your bow, you might already be a coder or a developer in a different sense. You might pick up some machine learning techniques. And um, part of what I think uh, people should be taught is ideally from a, a young age, like you were saying before, is some sort of uh, self-reflection, uh, social impact, uh, and at the end of the day, ethics. So how can you um, look at what you're producing and, and putting out into the world and decide whether it's uh, good or bad or useful for people um, in a way that's not just looking to see if it creates uh, monetary value because that's not necessarily a long-term view of what is useful for your kids or your grand your grandkids uh, as we've seen with oil and gas and all these sorts of things um, I mean do you teach this sort of thing in in uh, the galvanized courses that you you um, put together like um, um, some of the aspects of the legal aspects and the ethical aspects of these technologies so looking at like legislation and ethics I think one thing that we're doing is finding what's the latest state-of-the-art technology and bringing it in so if that's like Shap or Lime so that people can explore these packages in Python I think that's a great starting point um, we also cover things like growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. So are you willing to adapt and change, which is part of design thinking. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I've been um, talking so much about design thinking is that it's not only up to the data scientists to explore these issues. Everyone on the sprints or the agile teams need to be there. The product managers, the software engineers, the data engineers, and the business stakeholders have to be aligned thinking about ethics, thinking about implications. Uh, the challenge is that big tech and small tech has not been leading that way overall, which is where I think rightfully, as you've shared, Ben, you know, we see the European Commission and Parliament came out with their AI ethics report. Um, Rome at the Vatican's come out with their call of ethics. Even the Department of Defense uh, in Washington, D.C says we need to find traceable systems that are responsible um, so you know we can do our part in education uh, and it needs to be a public and private partnership yeah so you, you haven't come up, um, out with any of your own recommendations or principles of your your own understanding of these technologies yeah I mean I think uh, I think the technology is always being developed. Uh, for us as an education and digital transformation company, um, we don't invent the packages. We have you know different professors, if you will, that look at technology and see where the trends are going and think which ones are the most stable over time. That makes sense for students to learn. So you know we have both a consumer and enterprise side. Consumers, our belief is that we should be teaching you with language agnostic or system agnostic technology so that you can get your career. Um, I don't want to pigeonhole you into a platform if that's not going to accelerate your uh, career path uh, to future-proof your career in data science. Enterprises is a whole nother story because there you have companies that are looking to change their tech stack and they often come to a company like Galvanize and say, hey, we are looking to scale up cloud native services on AWS. Can you teach us Dart and Flutter and C++? Yes, we can. Let's see what that looks like. Let's go through an inception process. So I think the challenge definitely is um, who you are and what you're, what you're looking for. 
Yeah. Mm. And and you've you've talked about like lots of different technologies there. So you don't just teach um like you were saying before, like some Python and R, um, machine learning, uh, different libraries which are kind of uh widely used currently, but you also teach kind of uh server side stuff, um coding generally and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that'd be great to add. So yeah, so as Galvanize, uh, we've been one of the leading boot camps since 2012, and we have two core sides of the business that we teach, the software engineering side and the data side. The software engineering includes like cloud native services. This could be scaling up with Terraform, Ansible, GCP, Azure, AWS, uh, setting up Java and Spring stacks, React stacks, Angular stacks. So there's so much in that space to look about applications. Um, and then the data side is, of course, way more than data science. There's the data analytics, there's the data translator with the business results, the data engineer who's deploying, um, and even the AI specialist with AI workflows. So both sides, uh, I think we've seen have been splintering or specializing into different roles, which we've seen with you know startups in Silicon Valley. They've been moving into that pathway. The ML engineer, the AI ops, the DevOps, these are very uh, fast pathways uh, to career growth. Um, awesome. So uh, that all sounds really interesting. I'm I'm definitely more on the. I'm kind of like if I could do both, that would be awesome. Do you get people who could do both? <laughs> you know, who are interested in doing. You know, um, I'm I'm really interested in making applications, but also integrating machine learning. And you get these people like smashing them together. It's so fun. I was running this executive workshop for one of the world's largest staffing firms the other day. And one of the executives said the exact question, can someone be the analyst, the engineer, and the scientist at the same time? And my answer was yes, in small teams, especially startups, that's definitely possible. You can wear multiple hats. But as you build out a data science culture that moves from centralized to either embedded or hub and spoke, you know, you're gonna be specializing in different roles and you'll be on a team of, you know, somewhere from five to fifty people you can't do everything and and I think that's where agile really helps out you get to have your sprints and and see different parts of the process you're gonna do and you know you definitely could do multiple of these you can speak to your manager and say you know sure my role is mostly data science but I want to do some deployment can you let me play with these ETL pipelines let me in on the Hadoop cluster I want to see how we can uh, build better processes yeah, but that's and that's definitely more of a kind of business structure sort of thing than a, you know, skill set um, education side of it. Um, uh, so moving a slightly different tact, um, in listening to a lot of the conversations that you, you've been having on your podcast, um, the Humane podcast, um, there were some subjects which are uh, missing or kind of absent and i just really wanted to pick your brains on them because um they are they're big subjects uh, but they're not very practical ones um so these are things like um the idea of the singularity transhumanism agi uh, some of these topics and i was just wondering if you had kind of like your own idea of um your own ideas of any of these things and and why they might be absent from your podcast. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? Because I, I definitely come from the school of thought, having worked with data systems of let's make everything practical if possible. But there's always the long bets. And the long bets are singularity, 
transhumanism, and AGI. Um, one that I think has become more popular um, in the practical circuit lately has been AGI. You know, when we think of artificial general intelligence, everyone says, look at the progress we're making in computer vision and natural language processing. Those are narrow forms of AI, but can we transfer the learning across applications? And we've started to see that, especially in the text space. Um, now you could have a data set that's focusing on things like, you know, the Wall Street Journal and different stock performance, and then immediately move that to sports betting books with companies like DraftKings. So we're seeing that movement today. Um, I think AGI will be here one day. Um, I am not of the belief it will even be here in the next um, 30, 40 years. And I could be completely off the mark there, but I've not seen enough progress. I think there is so much um, shift between different mental models that are unpredictable. They're not enough deterministic yet today for us to be able to build machines that can do that. Um, I look to the shows though, like Westworld and Upload and Devs, all these popular series today that explore AGI and Singularity. And I think that's something that we should keep exploring, but I think it's it's still called science fiction for a reason. Um, on topics like you know transhumanism, you know, can we get to uh, an area where I have my bionic arm and I have my bionic eye, um, and can I have my own little chip in my brain so I never have to learn an English or Spanish or Chinese language ever again? I'm so hopeful for the work that Elon Musk is doing at Neuralink and the dozens of other companies doing it that are not in the press, that we will be there. Um, I think uh, that's something that's gonna happen a lot quicker than AGI. Um, I, I don't know about us getting to the singularity, though I see that as like the biggest um, area out there. That's like looking at, uh, you know, like Altered Carbon on Netflix, like this show about we're gonna have our, our, our machines on stacks or even like upload on Amazon where we're just able to take it and go to a whole new space that I think is the furthest off, but I think transhumanism is the one that's closest uh, to being a reality. Yeah, and there's some really interesting topics around how we feel about augmenting ourselves and how that impacts how we, you know, relate as human beings to each other. Um, just by the fact you have a chip in your brain, but I don't have a chip in my brain. You know, how do we associate with one another because we are almost two different types of people at that point? different capabilities um, and we we've we've grown up um, very much in the last couple of decades of trying to uh, level the playing field um, socially for everyone um, for for everyone's benefit so that you know the differences get ironed out um, in a way that we can um, communicate and, and have jobs and these things we don't get uh, discriminated against unnecessarily but even we might find that you know I'm automatically discriminated against for opting out um, of having a chip in my brain and things like this. So I think there's a lot of really, really interesting questions coming coming down the line almost with some of these technologies. I mean, it's it's incredible, Ben, to think that today the world is IQ and persistence. You know, if you and I spend time coding and learning, like it is our skill as a result of that routines, the memory and the persistence, but will accessible and equitable outcomes remain once we have chips in our brain? If I have the two gigabyte Neuralink that lets me learn Spanish, but that costs me $15,000, but you have a budget of a million dollars and you buy the 64 gigabyte that gives you 30 languages, I'm out of business. I can't compete with you. So it's like, are we going to a world of who has the bigger wallet? That's what we've seen so far with Spacelink, uh, 
that's what we've seen so far with SpaceX and Tesla, um, but it's still to be determined. Um, I hope we'll move to an accessible and equitable world. I still believe it, but I know that once we get these Neuralink chips, uh, the future of jobs are going to be much more human augmented by machines. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to try and try not to make my uh, the mind go uh, off into science fiction land a little bit. Um, so is there anything um, that you would like to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? So what I've been seeing and, and what's been a lot on my mind recently is how do we reopen and reimagine the economy? Uh, I talk with a lot of companies every week about, you know, what does it look like when we move from furloughed workers back to our current companies? I'm of the belief that we will get there, that actually the world is going to be much the same as it was before, but accelerated. And what I mean by that is right now, all the countries around the world are printing a lot of money and printing money typically means inflation, but people are not spending money, which typically means deflation. So at the moment, we're kind of holding everything at par. As soon as the economy's open, we are off to the races. And when we are off to the races, I mean, that is where fortune and riches are made and new technologies are formed. I'm really excited to see how this plays out because I think some countries are going to emerge stronger than others. What I mean by that, the countries that are going to emerge stronger are definitely going to be both China and the United States. Right now, the world's two and number one economies. Um, I think that's something that's been giving me a lot of pause of, you know, how do we set up the right task forces? How do we set up the right technologies so that everyone's enabled for this? Um, one of the other areas, I think, as an opportunity that not enough time has been spending, though, again, is reskilling. I think about this each and every day, like how do we take workforces? How do governments partner with us so people can get reskilled? Um, at Galvanize, we just partnered with the San Francisco government to offer um, free apprenticeships on SF Tech so that people can learn to code uh, for those who've been hurt the most, especially in the retail economy. Um, we see how countries like Singapore just approved about you know uh, several billion dollars to also offer these apprenticeships. Uh, and we're currently working on systems like that in the state of New York as well. Um, I think that's where we're going to see a lot of change in the next year. A lot of governments are going to be coming out with these workforce initiatives or these schemes to help reskill people. Um, and, and my biggest hope is that when we reskill them, what jobs are they going to go into? And will those be startups or big tech? The challenge I'm seeing, and I've spoken to a few founders on this, is a lot of companies want to come out leaner after COVID. A lot of private equity firms do not want to take such levered, leveraged bets on big companies like the WeWorks of the world that unfortunately COVID has only exasperated those issues. Um, so, you know, I think that's what keeps me up at night. Like, how do we best reskill people um, and enable them to feel as motivated um, as our conversation we're having here today? Um, I know we come from a dichotomy where I'm always that eternal optimist and, and you're always thinking, oh, no, are we moving to Blade Runner 2049? Uh, so a lot is still to be determined. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm very optimistic that the world in 24 months from today will be a much brighter world than it was as a result of COVID. Great. Um, I mean, it's always good to have the, the optimist in the room because otherwise things can get a bit uh, downbeat, can't they? Um, so thank you for being that person for us today. Um, that I'm, I'm hoping that we all, um, like you say, pull through in that way and that there are there is this um, willing, this, this um, money and this um, force 
around um, taking those um, industries which are maybe laggarding, um, lagging behind, and taking them uh, forward with more digital skills um, and hopefully data science and, and all this sort of stuff and, and bring them up to date. Um, I can add one thing there. So um, when we're thinking about where will people be in careers uh, post-COVID, um, there's been a few industries I've had a lot of thought on recently um, as an investor in the space as well. Um, I think four of the big industries that are just going to accelerate are anything that you can do it yourself, known as the direct-to-consumer economy. We've seen things from hair products to uh, doggy food kits uh, just going viral and scaling during COVID. Um, we've also seen the emergence of anything tele. Tele means this virtual model of virtual healthcare, virtual education. I think those types of products are definitely going to scale in demand and provide a lot of job opportunities for people to work in the new service economy. It's just going to be that tele economy. Um, I also think that the mental health space is a huge area for opportunity. We know the big players like Headspace and Calm, which have been giving some people pause and deep breath moments during COVID, but a lot of new devices are gonna come out there and a lot of new software. Um, and I think both devices and software are gonna be interesting spaces to improve productivity and mental health um, as we accelerate uh, from our current COVID pause. Yeah, I like the idea that um, we're almost going to be changing the workforce and how we view the workforce. Um, and things like TaskRabbit and um, Mechanical Turk have already started that process and had people be able to do certain things from from home or remotely. And now we're in this forced remotely situation. You know, we're reflecting, and new businesses are popping up, and some of those businesses are going to only just grow, like you were saying, um, into the future. Um, I like the idea that offices are somewhat changed by all this and that and because more people will be working from home there'll be more home offices and architecture will change and there'll this kind of domino effect of things obviously things always change but um how we view these uh, archetypal things like the office and the home will have to change after uh, some of what's going on at the moment how do you feel about that? Yeah, that that is one of my um, my biggest uh, contrarian conversations I've been having with a lot of people about because five uh, G technology is just kicking off. Fiber is only getting stronger today, but I am of the camp that post COVID. Big cities are going to get bigger, not smaller. The impact of cities like New York City and San Francisco are going to be bigger than before because of the aggregation economy. There is nothing like being in the city where you have the investors at one side of the table and the engineers at the other. We can do this in a distributed world. We see where leaders at Publicist Sapient like John Maeda talk about computer interaction design and having companies like Stripe that are all over the world but that's not for everyone. I think the rest of us, which is most of us, are still attracted to something that we see in city life. It's where civilization has evolved over the last 300 years. Um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, I think the suburban sprawl is a short-term trend. 
And we see that especially as the dichotomy between Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg. Jack at Twitter has taken the big approach, work from home forever, let's go there. Mark is of the complete opposite camp, which is the camp I'm in, which is we should be centralized uh, and co-located when possible. I think distributed makes sense in areas, but um, I think companies that um, have that collective power together, it's so valuable. One plus one is definitely more than two in those scenarios. Great. I mean, I love uh, going and having the, the social aspect of being in an office and, and seeing people and all that sort of thing and, and the wellness uh, and um, ease of access to people and productivity that that creates as well. Um, so I'm definitely of the camp that I have to be out of my house. I'm so bored of being in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I love my kids. You love your kids, right? House. But sometimes. Ah. Um, <laughs> so hopefully we'll get there and I'll be able to leave my house and uh, you'll be able to leave your your house and, and collectively we can all um, do things uh, where you don't have to be staring at the same four walls all the time. But obviously, you know, a lot of the aspects of this is good as well. Just not, not a lot of it. Same screen, yeah. different walls, ah. right? Um, so David... In the future, I mean, I, obviously, I'm talking to uh, a quite a positive person. Uh, what really excites you, uh, um, which you haven't already talked about, um, about AI and machine learning and what really scares you? Well, let's start out with what scares me. What scares me is companies that are making their own proprietary technology in-house, where they're taking technology that's free and open source, customizing it, repackaging it, and claiming it as something new. Um, that's not the case usually. I think a lot of these companies that we've seen try to implement systems like AI have been all hype and no practical results. Um, what scares me is that everyone's using buzzwords like AI and data science to say what's not true and it's gonna hurt and tarnish these brands um, and it's gonna hurt and tarnish the industry. I want AI to succeed. I think we want to move to a world where there is more human augmented intelligence, um, but we gotta uh, swim out, you know, and, and see who is really uh, leading those results versus just talking a lot. So that's what scares me a lot um, in the space. What, what excites me the most is open source, these open science collabs, the science publications that now go through cycles where new papers are in archive and papers with code every other day using open source packages like PyTorch or TensorFlow that are changing quantum, that are changing ethical conversations, that are helping us dive into creative technologies. I love what's going on with deep fakes. You know, I think a lot of people get scared from this. I think it's so cool to augment yourself with synthetic uh, images and videos and digital twins. Um, we're moving into a Ready Player One world. Whether we're ready or not, that is where we're going and that's what excites me. Um, we just need to have, I think, is what we've talked about today on the show, is the right conversations. We need to talk with ethicists. We need to actually have the title of data ethicist at companies today. Um, we need individuals to partner with public and private. And I think if we get the right laws and regulation, then we'll be moving in the right direction. But otherwise, we're going to have a lot more cases of Clearview AI and Banjo 
at the courtroom. We're going to have cases of Twitter, uh, unfortunately, coming at the court as well, where consumers say, you flagged my content for censorship, but I don't think that's true. There's a lot of contention happening right now, and I think we are just all triggered from the COVID quarter, um, but I'm hopeful as we move to the COVID half quarter and the COVID quarter quarter and the new normal that um, we're getting back to a world where we can build and create together, in essence, humans and machines. Great. Well, um, um, so we're kind of at the end now. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, before we sign off? Yeah, my biggest call to action, um, I think, is twofold uh, for those listening today to the show. Uh, first, if you are someone who's been impacted by COVID in your domicile or your government area, please check in with your workforce areas. A lot of governments are coming up with fantastic schemes today to provide free education, um, especially to help those who are not in the tech economy to get into the tech economy. We're seeing it in the United States, in San Francisco, New York. We're seeing it in Singapore. We're seeing it in Thailand. We're going to be seeing it, I'm sure, in Britain as well, if not already. Um, so please explore those opportunities um, so you can be part of the new wave of tech. Um, and second, as well, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please tune in more to Ben. And if you like what I'm sharing as well, check out the Humane Podcast or the H-U-M-A-I-N podcast.com. Awesome. Um, so I was going to ask you, um, where can people follow you, find out about you, uh, read your stuff, listen to your stuff? So you've got the Humane Podcast. Um, where else can they follow you? Yeah, if you're also interested in you know what I'm doing in education, you can check out galvanize.com. Um, and everything I'm doing with the podcast, I also got these reports I come out with. I mentioned today several times my design thinking standards, my Q2 2020 trends. These are all at humanepodcast.com forward slash reports. You could download them and see how they can help you as you're bouncing back from COVID as well. Great. Well, thanks uh, very much, David, for uh, being on the podcast and injecting us with your positivity at this, at this time. Um, I'm hoping that um, my next podcast is going to be similarly uh, as positive, that we can guide us through this time. And then maybe I can be more pessimistic at a later date where people are ready for it. Um, but again, thank you very much, David. And um, I hope you uh, have a, a nice uh, time until we can meet in person. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. You as well. Onward and upward. Thank you. Hi, welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again for David to joining us on the podcast this week. I really enjoyed his optimism and passion for the data science and education part. I'm not sure I really agree that America are going to be off to the races after COVID, after their recent activity. But obviously, here's hoping that we all do okay after this period. Please go check out David's podcast, The Humane Podcast. And if you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics, where you can get early access to content, discussion, extra content and videos, and help us support more conversation around ethics, AI, technology, and its impact on society. Thanks again.